welcome to episode 21, uh, The Gaseous Planets. And uh, good afternoon, Shane. You're going to have some editing ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's easy. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of our preamble discussion that uh, that I picked up there, but uh, it could be a, a significant uh, portion of it. So how's your day going? Uh, good. You know, it's funny. Uh, we have winds of 30, where, yeah, I think 30 or 40 kilometers per hour gusting to 50. Oh, it's it seems like a peaceful day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Last night I woke up and it was like somebody had like a series of fire hoses aimed at the back of our house and then some giant creature was just scratching claws on the stucco all around our bedroom. And then like I slept maybe two and a half or three hours and my wife, she just like slept like a baby right through the whole thing. And so I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit tired today, but uh, hopefully tonight uh, get some, get some good rest. So, so this is part two uh, to episode 15. Well, wow, hard to believe we're on episode 21 now, but uh, this is the second part to the one that we did uh, several weeks ago now on the uh, terrestrial planets, um, which were uh, Mercury and Venus, uh, Earth, of course, that we didn't really talk that much about Earth and, uh, and Mars. Um, but what are these, what are the four gaseous planets, I guess is what we're calling them now. Yeah. So they're much larger than the planets we talked about in episode 15 and they are Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus and Neptune. Um, there's, there's a lot of interesting features to observe there. And I guess we'll probably get into it here as, as we go on through the episode. Yeah, so the one thing that, that has changed, at least since, since I've been doing astronomy anyway, is, is we used to refer to the four of them as the gas giants. But that's changed now because the term uh, gas giant was, was uh, coined in, in 1952, which is long before you and I came around. But, uh, but now they, they refer to the gas giants as just the planets like Jupiter and Saturn, and then planets like uh, Uranus and Neptune. Uh, technically, we're referring to those as ice giants, and I suppose because the gas giants are giant planets composed mostly of hydrogen and helium, um, and a layer of uh, metallic hydrogen makes up the, the bulk of, of each planet. But uh, the ice giants, they have, uh, you know, water clouds and, uh, you know, other type of, uh, of clouds that are, that are more uh, ice-related, like ammonia and, and some... Uh, some non-hydrogen clouds, I think uh, methane clouds as, as well. So anyhow, so we'll start with Jupiter. How does that sound? Love it. Might as well, since we're working our way from, from the inside out. So the yeah. king of the solar system. So what do you know about Jupiter, Shane? I know it's my favorite planet to observe. Really? Why is that? solar system. It's the most dynamic. Um, you know, you have the four Galilean moons. So mm -hmm. there are very large moons in the solar system. They're visible through, uh, you know, good, powerful binoculars, but through any telescope, you'll see the four moons. Yeah. They're always in different positions, different alignments. You don't see any of the, well, maybe with a really big telescope, you'd see some surface details, but for your, you know, for your typical backyard telescope, yeah. uh, they really just look like stars. But they're always moving. If you time it just right, you might capture one coming from behind Jupiter yeah. or passing, behind, like going from being visible to going behind it, um, which is a really neat thing to observe. Um, you know, I think a couple episodes ago, we talked about um, the shadows, uh, yeah. shadow transits. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's really neat. Um, 
there's, there's a, a number of different bands on Jupiter, cloud bands that all have unique detail. And what's really neat is I think their rotational period is like nine hours. Nine hours. Yeah. It's like the median time. You know, of course, clouds at the equator and clouds at the North Pole may move at uh, some sort of variance, but uh, yeah, just nine hours to them rotate around. So you can see a lot of different things over the course, even of, of an evening. Absolutely. And, you know, the probably the showpiece feature is the great red spot. It's not always visible, but when it comes around, I love looking at it. Um, you know, you, you can see so much detail. Now, you do need a good night of seeing, but you can see festoons, uh, different uh, kind of creamy to, you know, brownish chocolatey colors in some of those uh, cloud bands. Um, again, that great red spot has kind of more of a pinkish tone, in my opinion. Yeah but it's color. And again, it, it just, it, it's always changing. And I, I love looking at Jupiter and it's big, right? It's big. So you're able to actually get out um, a lot of the detail and you can do that with like a, you know, even a 60 millimeter telescope will show you a lot of things on Jupiter. You don't need a lot of aperture to have fun with that planet. Yeah. It's got, uh, you know, apparently like in sort of my research for the podcast and thanks so much for like that introduction on, on observing Jupiter, um, two and a half times all the material of the other planets are in Jupiter. So it's really big. Um, so big in fact that, you know, sometimes it'll be referred to as, as a failed star and you could fit about 11 earths, uh, across uh, the disc of Jupiter sort of, uh, that that's how big it is and sort of for scale you could only fit 10 jupiters across the disk of the sun so you know sort of so to speak um so it's really on on just a huge order of magnitude larger uh than earth and and most the other planets and the neat thing about jupiter is it spends about a year in each of the zodiacal constellations uh plus off Eucus. and uh so that means that it's <laughs> it's got about a 12 year orbit and you know, sort of some years it spends more time uh, in a constellation. Some of the other constellations are, are pretty small. Now you talked about some of the stuff that's observable. There's some really neat stuff that's not observable, like the Aurora, the rings. There's about 80 other moons than the Galilean moons uh, and the radiation belts. So, so the moons, can you name the moons? All, all 80 of them sure here, here we go. <laughs> okay we'll, we'll start with just the first four and then maybe we'll we'll give you a break after that okay okay fair enough so the the main the main moons the galilean moons why are they galilean moons chris what does that mean so they're called galilean moons because galileo discovered them uh in 1609 1610 and uh, galileo was observing jupiter and saw these bright stars around it and then he, he sketched them and uh very very basic sketching which really i find inspirational because i feel like i can actually sketch maybe a little bit better than than galileo did and uh, he just drew these little star like points around it and then came back and noticed that over the course of uh, several nights that they they had moved so they're named uh, galilean moons after galileo these four bright ones yeah so the names of these four moons uh it's io europa Ganymede and Callisto. Um, and do you have a favorite? I like Io because it just looks so strange and surreal. It looks like if you were going to invent uh, a planet for like the original Star Trek cast to beam down on, it would be Io because it's covered in this yellow sulfuric um, material 
and uh, it's got all these volcanoes on them and some of them are spewing out some red material over top of it. It just looks like it, it's just the wildest psychedelic colors. And you know, when you're talking about color, and although we don't see any of these colors from Earth, uh, just knowing that's out there and, and you know, waiting for such explorers and exploration um, really makes me excited. Like it seems like an actual place, you know, uh, sort of second only to Mars for uh, some pretty uh, incredible, incredible detail. How about yourself? Do you have a favorite planet? Uh, well, I, yeah, my favorite Galilean moon is Europa. And why I like that one is it's basically like a, a moon that's completely covered in water, mm -hmm. uh, but it has a, like a, a, an ice shell around it. Yeah. Um, and photos of it have shown that it's very dynamic, that there's okay. these ice, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, ice fields, ice plates. I'm not sure. Uh, but they're, they're changing, you know, probably due to some gravitational effects of Jupiter, um, but they also believe, I think, that there's some volcanic activity underneath these ice sheets. Mm -hmm. um, but what really intrigues me about this is, you know, if you have water, there's, you know, that's one of the key building blocks for life. Yeah. So in our quest to find life in the solar system outside of our planet, um, you know, Europa is very, very intriguing. And, um, I, you know, I don't know, I should have looked before this episode, but I know NASA was looking at some potential probes that would kind of drill you know, down. smash through yeah or drill down through that ice to start to see what's underneath there is it is it water like what we have is it you know is it you know, what's the composition of it can can anything be detected there so uh it's 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 pretty cool i'm really intrigued by that yeah cool so how about these other two i and sorry i'm calling them planets because sort of in in my mind i'm not one of those people that believes that we should just have the the uh, eight uh, planets, although, you know, personally, my personal view is that they've limited to eight so that it's still easy for some people to get their heads around them or, or something. But I really feel like these moons of Jupiter are so big being being larger, except for uh, Europa, than, than our moon. And really, I, I, in many ways, I think that our moon is, is very much a planet of its own right as well. Um, you know, but but they're so they have so much variance, and they just look like worlds, right? You know, having oceans, having active volcanism, active plate tectonics, others with oceans. I mean, th these seem like planets to me, right? They don't seem like these these moons. When I think of a moon, I think of kind of like uh, a body that has no atmosphere, that's just cratered and it's pretty static and sort of a boring place to go. And these are far from that, eh? That's, that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, especially IO and, and Europa, you mm -hmm. know, they are very active. Uh, you know, when we look at our moon, it is kind of dead. It doesn't really change. Um, it, it had a period of, you know, volcanic activity and, you know, uh, a lot of meteors smashing into it, changing the topography. Yeah. Billions uh, but, of years ago though. But, yeah. Yeah. Like now it, it really doesn't change. So uh, some of these other moons uh, that we'll talk about um, aren't like that, which is kind of neat. Yeah. So we have uh, Ganymede. That's a pretty big one, larger than our moon, covered in uh, rock. And, and it also has uh, an ocean. I think it's like hundreds of kilometers towards the interior, but it's it's got some sort of uh, water body in it anyway. And then we have Callisto, which is really big, uh, but more similar to, to our rocky moon. Yeah. 
And then the, you know, the other 80 moons are much, much smaller. Um, in some cases, I think they're almost just captured asteroids, aren't they? Like very irregular shaped. Uh, yeah. They just happen to orbit around Jupiter. So they get the moon cat or cat, uh, tagging and, and that, you know, a little less interesting in my opinion. Yeah. Well, even like, uh, so the fifth moon is Amalthea, which, which I know because uh, I'm a big uh a reader of of E. Barnard, the famous uh, American astronomer, and he uh, he was the one that discovered it in the in the eighteen nineties, um, and it was the last uh, object that was discovered, like a moon around another planet, visually. Um, and when they finally did imaging of it, it just looks like a little asteroid, and it's so much smaller than the others. You you need basically something like the Lick thirty uh, six inch refractor to to hunt that down just just about it's it's pretty faint i know somebody who did it with with a pretty big uh, dobsonium but uh that's that's kind of kind of what you're looking at so yeah very interesting so you talked earlier about the uh bands and the belts uh a little bit so there's there's some dark areas and they're separated by uh lighter hued zones and on on poor to average nights of seeing you can typically see what like two main dark belts and then uh like the equatorial zone that's the white zone that's in, in the middle or the light colored zone and then on on excellent nights how many how many belts or bands have you seen on really good night shane oh gee i think about eight or nine like the yeah. uh, the, the polar banding or whatever it, it looks like one big you know section um and then like there's the equatorial bands um yeah yeah it uh, seven or eight for sure maybe even uh, probably about eight i think yeah it's one of those things where it seems like it seems like you can see a lot of belts and bands on it um on really good nights and then it's kind of one of those things where where some of them <laughs> excuse me appear just below the the visual detection level as well so yeah, and th that's sort of the main feature on Jupiter. And then, of course, we have that great red spot that you you mentioned uh, before as well, uh, which is a giant anticyclonic storm. It's a large oval that rotates uh, counterclockwise, um, taking about uh, six days. Uh, and it's larger than the Earth. And possibly it's been observed since uh, 1665, although there's, you know, they haven't there wasn't like active monitoring for, for many decades at, at a time. So it's hard to determine if, if that's what's, uh, uh, what was originally visible there, but there's been a variety of other white and red ovals. I remember there was oval B8, uh, that one that I think Chris Go discovered. Do you recall that one? I do. Yep. Yep. And, uh, were you able to observe that? Have you observed that? I think I did. I'd have to go check my observing logs. Um, I'm pretty sure I did. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've definitely the, seen that. So, and, and the great red spot is kind of interesting because the, um, I guess the deepness of the red kind of varies throughout history. Uh, there's been times where the reports have been that it's extremely red, and then even just a couple of years ago, there was sort of speculation that it might just disappear altogether because it was uh, getting lighter and lighter in color and even shrinking a bit in size. So yeah. again, just to talk about the dynamic aspects of the planet, even the great red spot varies, um, you know, over time. And sometimes it's not like decades, sometimes it's months, you know, that, uh, you can see some real change there. Yeah. You know, the, the one observation, like sometimes it can be hard to even pull out the red spot depending on the seeing conditions. I, I, like, I don't know, maybe it's easier for you or other people than it, 
than it is for me. But there's there's often nights where I go out and look, and I'm like, is that the red spot? Am I actually seeing it? What am I looking at here? But uh, but then other nights it really seems to stick out. I don't know what your experience is like with that. Yeah, Jupiter certainly is a, a very good object in the sky to determine how good the seeing is. Um, I've had some nights, and there's only been, I think, two or three of these nights when I've been looking at Jupiter, where I can throw as much magnification in my telescope as possible and still have an incredible view of, of Jupiter. It, it almost looks picturesque, mm -hmm. and the detail is so incredible. But then on a night of poor seeing, um, yeah, sometimes the great red spot can be really difficult to pull out, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's just, you know, a challenge to pull out the banding almost. Yeah. So the uh, the best view I ever had it was we had a, a 17 and a half inch reflector at, at the uh, Halifax Center when I was a member there. And we would mask it down to 14 inches. And we were looking at it when, I, when it was masked to uh, 14 inches. And we could really see like detail in the red spot and then like sort of in that, that adjacent zone between the uh, the red spot and the belt that it kind of resides. You can almost sense like the, like the cloud material kind of shearing against uh, one another. And we were looking at, I think we had a light pollution filter that we were actually using for whatever reason. It, was, it gave a really eerie kind of greenish, iridescent green view to it. And the one thing that always stuck with me just uh, <laughs> in the way that we could see the, the clouds kind of uh, just sort of sifting and moving, it reminded me of like almost like a cross section of uh, like anatomy or something and like the pulsing of blood uh, through veins. It seemed very organic uh, to me anyway. And that, that always really stuck with me, how much, how much detail and then how, it, how real it looked. Like it looked like a, like a living thing, I guess maybe is, is the best way to put it. And that, that's something that doesn't uh, seem to translate as well in photographs or anything else, like, like how, how real these things look to your eye. Uh, in real time versus in some sort of gussied up digital mediated, uh, you know, Photoshop technology. Eh? <laughs> that's a great point. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love visual astronomy is you really get a different sense of an object when you're looking at it with your eye. Um, and it's not to take away from the photographs because they're great to look no, at too, great. but it, it is just a different experience at the eyepiece. And, you know, maybe one of the takeaways here for anybody listening is if you happen to be observing Jupiter and it's one of those nights where you can just keep putting magnification on and the view is great, don't, don't stop. Spend your whole night looking at Jupiter. Yeah. Don't go to bed. Take it in because those nights are rare and incredible. Yeah. And you can just kind of look for a while and then take a break. And you shouldn't look for real long stretches at any given time either because your eye will get fatigued and it's not as, as enjoyable, but uh, yeah, good point. Yeah. You know, I always think of visual observing is, is kind of like going to the Louvre. You know, I went to the Louvre, I referenced my trip to, to France at the end of the last podcast. And when I went, you know, this is, uh, you know, just about a decade ago and, you know, everybody's got their digital cameras and, you know, some people are even using their, their phones to take photos of everything. And, you know, you get there and you realize like, well, Everything, you can actually go online to the Louvre, first of all, and you can pretty much go down the corridors and you can look at high resolution images of, of everything, pretty much, more or less. 
Yeah. Um, same with a lot of other museums these days, which is really cool, especially during during these times of isolation. Um, but uh, it, it's really surprising how many people still bother to get in that plane and fly over there and actually go to the Louvre every day. Like it's kind of a, a funny thing in a way to think that everything um, can be consumed in this digital format, more or less. Um, yet still people will will go to be in the presence of the original article. Um, and of course, I don't know, have you, have you seen the Mona Lisa before? No, no, I've never been to the So the first thing people always say is, it's so small, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, you know, it, I'm not saying that as a negative thing. It's, it's the size that it is, and it's, it's a, a masterful work. Uh, you know, I'm not, I, not really a, an art scholar or anything like that, but uh, certainly uh, I think argumentatively it would be one of the most well-known, if, if not uh, argumentatively, the, one of the best paintings ever created. Um, so <clears throat> it's just kind of interesting to go and stand in the presence of, of the actual, uh, item. Cause you know, there's something to do with the photons. My friend Tim would always say, you know, when you're looking at a galaxy, those photons that were created, uh, those, those millions of years ago, they're traveling through space and then they're, they're actually interacting with your eye and that this does something like in a way, although it's not like a real physical connection, but it's not that far away from uh, a physical connection. Like you're really interacting with it in a way, like you're actually interacting with the original article in a way, unlike uh, an image which is taken and then you're just interacting with the photons that are being generated in that room. Um, and it's the same. And I think that's why people go, whether they realize it or not, I think that's why so many people go and stand in front of the Mona Lisa, not just to say, oh, wow, it's so small. But I mean, that is part of it, is you actually get that sense of, well, how big are these, these pieces of, of work? And then some other things like, you know, Venus de Milo, it's a pretty big statue. Like, I mean, like when you stand there, you're like, whoa, like, and the Tributo to Galileo is huge, you know, like, I, I really hope Galileo wasn't that big. Um, you know, but, but when you actually stand in the presence of the actual article, I, I really think there is something to that. Sorry for the tangent. We should move on to Saturn. <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it. Yeah, good stuff. So Saturn is, is the sixth planet from the sun. So what of Saturn, Shane? What of Saturn? Well, um, this was the very, so my very first view through a telescope was Saturn. Hmm. And it, oh gee, I would have been 10 or 11 years old. Um, my, my mom and my grandpa took me to the local astronomy club. They had a public night. And they had a four-inch uh, uh, brochure refractor, very old, uh, made of brass. And um, they had Saturn in, in there. And I couldn't believe what I saw. And I, you know, this image, so, you know, I'm 43 now. So this was quite a while ago. And I asked me what I ate for breakfast three days ago, and I have no idea. Yeah. But this image is still burned into my mind. It was so incredible. Uh, you know, you see this creamy ball, you know, the, the disc or the, the actual planet of Saturn. And then you see these uh, glorious rings surrounding it. And I thought, I thought that they were tricking me. I thought for sure they had just cut a picture out of a magazine and taped it to the end of the tube. Because I just didn't think that you would see something like that. I don't know what I expected, to be honest. I was just blown away by that image. 
And, you know, you and I do a lot of public outreach uh, every year, yeah. probably not this year because of the pandemic, mm. but, you know, hundreds of people um, will look through our telescopes throughout the year. Yeah. And when Saturn's in the sky, we make sure we show them that. And what's interesting to me is the, the reaction that I just described of what I had, I see that same reaction from many other people yeah. when they look through my telescope and see Saturn for the first time. And in some cases, it's the first time they've looked through a telescope too in their lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, the, the emotional response that some people have um, is incredible. And it's just, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to look at. Yeah, it's one of those rare things uh, in the nighttime sky that, um, you know, unlike a, a galaxy or a deep sky object like a nebula or a cluster or something like that, um, or, or maybe even some other things, um, it's one of like the few things that it looks like what you're expecting, like in this very surreal way. Plus, at least to my eye, it seems to have this amazing three-dimensional aspect to it where it really seems to be, you get a sense that it is floating out there in space and it is this huge, huge thing um, because you're, you're looking through this telescope, you know it's magnifying and you actually get a sense of that again versus just, just seeing this flat image. And that's the thing, you know, that, that I've uh, taken away from, from the experience is that, you know, that's what I think really um, impacts people is how three-dimensional uh, it actually looks like there really is depth to it. You get a sense of those rings cutting around the backside of it, that the rings that are tilted closer to you, they're reflecting light in a slightly different way than, than the backside of the rings. So it is just amazing. Yeah. It's great to look at. Um, you know, I spend, I, it, it's interesting because outside of some uh, basic detail within the rings and a little bit in the cloud banding, there's not a lot of like things to look at on Saturn. It doesn't change the way Jupiter does. No. It's not feature rich like our moon or even Mars for that, that case. Yeah. Um, but I still look at it every night that it's up because it's so incredible. Yeah. Um, I love it. What else was I going to say? Well, I'll, anyway. I'll jump in while you think on that and I'll say yeah. that it, it does have uh, bands and zones like you referenced in a way similar to Jupiter. They're just much more subtle and wider as, as you get near the equator. And it does have some storms. Like I remember, I can't remember mm -hmm. when it was, I, think, I feel like it was 2011 or 2012, but there was that great dragon storm about, uh, anyway, close to a decade ago now, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I, I never I, saw it, but I, 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 I remember it. Right, to see it. It was, it was pretty subtle, but there's some great like Hubble and other photos of it. Um, you've got white ovals from time to time. I've seen the odd white oval on it under, under really good conditions. And it's got um, a huge polar vortex on each of the poles. The one in the north is a big hexagon polar vortex, like a big storm up there. And then there's a circular one on the south. Yeah. Have you ever seen those? Yeah. No, no. I've, I've never seen those. I think some people say like when it's tilted a certain way, they can yeah. kind of see the shading. But of course, because we're looking at it uh, more or less like edge on, um, you know, we're, we're not flying up over the poles like they did with the uh, Cassini spacecraft uh, uh, that was the most recent mission there. But, but there's several moons, just like with, uh, with Jupiter, we have a handful of moons there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the moons of, uh, of Saturn? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's a number of them that are visible just with a telescope. Again, they, they really just look like stars. Yeah. Um, one of them is the largest moon and I think it's the largest moon in the solar system, Titan. Sure. Um, we'll go with that. And that one is, <laughs> what's that? 
We'll go with that. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it's visible any night that it's not behind Saturn. Yeah. Uh, Rhea is often visible. I'm just trying to think of the other ones here. Um, Yone. Tethys, I think, yeah. is often visible. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Enceladus, which is probably one of the most interesting moons in the in the solar system, um, because it's it's the one that's that has those geysers that are spouting off material, and I, I believe I'm not sure if the theory has has sort of held water or not, um, but I believe that that the the what do you call it the hypothesis was that that material is probably helping uh, keep those rings uh, alive, so to speak. Hmm. Now, how do you yeah, see it? That, that I always want to call it enchiladas, and I always think <laughs> enchil I like enchiladas. So, oh yeah, and then Iapetus. So I think it's what two, four, six, seven. Yeah, you can see all these. Uh, so you can see Dione, Tethys, Mimas, Enceladus, Rhea, Titan, Iapetus. You know, good conditions, good telescope, medium-sized telescope. You should be able uh, to see them all. But typically, like you say, on on decent nights when it's visible, uh, Titan is, is the one that, that's the most readily apparent. Which moon is the one that has like the giant sort of fissure almost around it? Um, half of it is like very black and then the other half of it is a much lighter color. I can't recall. Yeah, it's not visible through a telescope, no. but it's a, it's a very interesting planet because they think it was two bodies that collided. Is it Iapetus? It doesn't matter, but um, uh, I think it. I think you can. I think what you do see, though, um, just off the top of my head, I think what you see is that sometimes you can see it, like through my five inch. I think sometimes I can see it, and sometimes I can't see it. I think because of the, uh, it's so dark on one side. But I thought it was. Now there's there's a couple one. One of them is an object that was like two objects that were smushed together, and then one of them is like spouting out material and then that material is falling back and covering one side in ice and the other side is is uh is in this like dusty coal type color material but i think i'm not sure are those the same object or not well yeah i think it is iapetus i'm just looking again on uh on wikipedia and there's this equatorial ridge that goes around okay. iapetus so there is and, there's a ridge around it eh? hmm. yeah and uh and there is like kind of a dark area that yeah, it looks like it was dusted in coal almost. Okay, so it's it's one object. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought that. What's the one that looks like the Death Star? Oh, that that's uh, Mi uh, Mimis. Mimis, yes. Yeah. Okay, and that that crater is called Herschel. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was kind of getting them, uh, kind of getting those two mixed up. So because anyway. William Herschel discovered the moon. Oh, did he really? Yeah, yeah oh. I'm just reading that too. <laughs> oh, I see how right off as, as reliable as Wikipedia is. Um, yes. Excellent. <laughs> so let's talk about the rings. Oh, yes. So how thick are these rings? Like when, when you look at them, they can seem razor thin. Yeah, if uh, I think, what is it, every 12 years or something like that, um, the, the rings of Saturn will be edge on from our perspective on Earth. So you just see this line and it's very, it's very strange to see it like that because you're used to seeing far more detail in those rings. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're quite, the rings are quite thin uh, relative to the size of the planet. Yeah. Yeah, they're like around 100 meters or 100 yards thick, I guess. And there, there's a couple of theories. One of them was that the uh, these rings are the remnants of a moon 
that was destroyed around Saturn. And then the other is that uh, they originated from the solar nebula when Saturn uh, was being formed in the early uh, parts of our, our solar system formation. But uh, some of the ice uh, in the rings comes from Enceladus's geysers, which we kind of referenced earlier. And uh, yeah, they go edge on about every 13 or so years, um, just depending on, on where we are in our orbit, where it is in its orbit. Um, but it takes 27 years for it to go around the uh, uh, around the sun. So it's it's exactly, well, not exactly, but it's about halfway through um, that uh, that period of time that we'll see them. And then, you know, around 13 or so years later, uh, we'll see them see them again and uh, go edge on but it just depends on how we're lining up with Saturn and of course Saturn has a bit of a tilt too so there's there's a few other variables that uh, that happen but we'll see them edge on again I think in 2025. Hmm, interesting and one of the other neat things too about the moons uh, at least some of them that the Cassini mission validated was that a number of these moons are actually like ring shepherds uh, they the, the moons influence the particles that make up the rings around Saturn oh, yeah, right. and sort of keep them in place and, and keep some like uniform divisions within the rings. Um, again, it's a, it's a very, it's a very neat system of how it all comes together to form this, this beautiful work of art in the solar system. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Anything else to add? That was a good point. Anything else to add on Saturn? that? Yeah. Let's move on to uh, what is next one here? Uranus. Uranus. Yeah. Seventh from the sun, an ice giant made up of water, ammonia, methane ices. It's also got some rings and moons. And it was discovered uh, on many occasions before being recognized as a planet. And in fact, as you know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in early uh, visual astronomy. And uh, both Hipparchus and uh, possibly Ptolemy, uh, you know, way back in the early BCs, uh, actually had it added to their star catalogs. Wow. Uh, and it appeared in the Alma Jest, um, although they they just sort of plotted it as a star um, because it is just sort of uh, at that uh, faint star, uh, but naked eye visible level. Uh, they they did end up plotting it, which is which is really interesting. I mean, it just shows how exacting they were uh, even in those days that 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 did not escape their attention. So, but it wasn't really known uh, as a planet until uh, you know. Uh, Herschel came along and and made the official discovery uh, in 1781. But there's several instances of uh, John Flamsteen and Lemoyne uh, observing it, uh, you know, much much earlier before that. But but Herschel's the one that kind of gets the gets the credit. But it's got this odd tilt to it. It's kind of hard to get your head around the tilt. But um, they think it was slammed into by a couple objects. I was watching the. Uh, have you watched the season three of Cosmos yet with Neil deGrasse Tyson? No, I haven't. Uh, you know, which is, it's sort of an interesting show. Um, but, you know, they, they do a good explanation of what happened to, to Uranus in that. They show these two bodies kind of colliding with it. And then because of those co collisions, it's set on its edge um, so that for 42 years, it gets continuous sunlight on one side, followed by 42 years of of darkness in the 84 years it takes to uh, go around the sun. Have you observed Uranus before? Yeah, um, in my eight-inch uh, Dobsonian many, many years ago, I, I saw it a few times. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, like you track it down, it kind of looks like, like what, sort of like an aqua marine. I'm actually looking at my tack focuser. The color is not too different from like the, the 
the steel color on a Takahashi telescope. Yeah, like you can definitely pick up that color. Um, I didn't find that challenging at all. Uh, one thing I'll say though is that's it. Like there's not much else to see. It's very, it's yeah. very small in comparison to any of the other planets that we've talked about. Yeah. Um, it is almost stellar in appearance. Like it almost looks like a star, except it is, it is larger. Like you can make out a real small disc or circle. And again, that aqua color is, is apparent. Yeah. And in like the larger amateur telescopes of like 10 inches or so people report like limb darkening and you can see uh, Titania and Oberon, the the moons, it has a variety of other moons as well. And a ring system, which is not, uh, not visible from, from earth anyway. So anything else to add to your, you know, these, these, these last two are going to be a little bit shorter than the first two because uh, Jupiter and Saturn have such striking features. They're so large and so close. And then Uranus and Neptune uh, are much further away and pretty uniform in, in appearance. <laughs> yeah, they are. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's two, th- I think there's two general things that I'll say about Uranus and Neptune that kind of make them intriguing to me. And it's not from a observational standpoint from my telescope. Um, it's that they are so far out. Um, we, we know you know, of those two planets, we know the least about them compared to say Saturn and Jupiter. We've also sent probes to Saturn and, and yeah. uh, past Jupiter, which have provided a lot of uh, information and data. But the other thing you already mentioned, the axial tilt of uh, Uranus. So, you know, normally the North is on kind of the top and South is on the bottom, but this whole planet's on its side, which is bizarre. Yeah. Um, and then when we start talking about Neptune, um, I think it rotates backwards, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, d- I don't have that in my notes. Uh, but yeah, I believe, I believe you're right. So Neptune is the eighth, and it'll be our final planet. Of course, uh, I do want to tack on that I'd like to do another one of these uh, podcasts on, on the other sort of real planets, you know, I think to talk about some of the asteroids and dwarf planets and uh, Kuiper Belt objects uh, are really sufficient uh, to include in the solar system as well, because they, they are so large and an important part of it, but it takes about 165 years for, for Neptune to go around the sun. So it's, I think it's like just completing or whatever it's, it's, uh, it's second orbit or, or halfway through its second orbit since it was discovered in, in 1821. So it's got a great dark spot that, uh, has been observed by, by the Hubble. And, uh, it incidentally was actually observed by Galileo and he drew that on, uh, on December 1612 and January of 1613. Uh, so it's really interesting. It's, it's really unfortunate that he didn't, um, you know, sort of recognize it for what it was. There's just no way that he would have, but it's funny, you know, it's funny, like an astronomical discovery as with science, it's not a discovery if the observer doesn't have the, knowledge of what they're they're looking at right so even though he did uh sketch it uh it falls to uh to others to to make that claim so it's sort of confusing on on who can lay that claim though eh? like i kind of sent you that story i don't know if you read through it all yeah i did yeah yeah it was interesting so it's it's a bit of this back for i don't think i'm going to read this whole thing though i i this was more for like I guess just background on it and that, but there were um, a variety of people, we'll put it that way, that were involved in the discovery. Um, 
uh, one individual was a mathematician who kind of uh, lobbied for uh, the Berlin Observatory to go and, and to take uh, to take a look for it. But it kind of seems now uh, that uh, it was, uh, you know, you know, one of these one of these sort of debatable things on on who and there seems to be some sort of uh, political overtones into whether it was observers in England or Germany or or wherever in uh, in who actually uh, discovered uh, the planet. But they think that this planet just like with Uranus, they think that Uranus and Neptune probably were uh, were formed towards the uh, inner part of the solar system, eh? like during the solar nebula phase. And then just kind of made their way outwards? Outwardly migrated. I call it the okay. outward migration, which isn't really well uh, understood. But in order for them to have the constituent components that they have with all that water ice, um, like water ice just would, wouldn't have occurred in such quantities uh, out, uh, you know, in, in an orbit that, that takes 165 years to go around the sun. So there's 14 known moons. Can you name one moon of Neptune? I cannot. <laughs> it's Triton. Not to Triton, be right. Triton, right? And it's yeah, great yeah. because you, you can think like Neptune is, uh, is the yes. god of the sea, right? And then he carries... Isn't, isn't, isn't it the Triton that he carries? I think the, so. The three Sounds prong, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, you know, not wouldn't be my weapon of choice, but uh, I guess, guess it may do in, in the uh, early Grecian times. So, um, yeah, and it's, uh, it, it takes a long time to, uh, to go around. And Triton was actually discovered only 17 days after the discovery of Neptune by uh, William Lassell. So unlike any other large... Uh, planetary moon in the solar system. Triton has a retrograde orbit around uh, around Neptune, and it's tidally locked. So there's some rings around Neptune as well, uh, but you can't see them from Earth. They're only a, a Hubble Space Telescope or large, uh, you know, Keck-based uh, telescope. Uh, you would need like the very, very largest. So. So with that, I think we'll we'll end our tour of the solar system with one sort of final comment on Neptune. We've we've gone all the way from the inner solar system to the last official planet in the solar system. But if you look at Neptune through a telescope, um, you'll kind of see what Earth would look like if you were looking back at the Earth from one of the other planets. And Neptune kind of looks like a pale blue dot, um, very much maybe as Earth might appear. Uh, if you were to look at it. So it's kind of neat to kind of get to the end of the solar system and say, hey, if you look back, um, this is kind of what Earth would look like if, if you go to take a look. Have you seen Neptune through your telescope, Shane? have, yep. With that same eight-inch Dobsonian that I saw Uranus. And Neptune certainly has that blue look to it. You know, Uranus, a little more aqua, maybe a little tougher to perceive that color sometimes, but yeah. um, Neptune is is very apparent. It's yeah, neat. yeah. I uh, I did take a long look at it one night through a ten inch. We we put a ten inch. It was on a a really big equatorial mount out in the fields, and we watched it for for an evening. And uh, yeah, it was pretty neat. Like you could definitely see the color, and um, we didn't see any clouds. Some people have like sketched out some pretty um you know, vague looking looking clouds on it but uh yeah it, it has that sort of very much like ocean blue like what you might think of as like a like a nice beach color um so yeah it's it's kind of neat 
Yeah, another interesting note about Neptune that I'll just throw in real quick here is, um, you know, the kind of official discovery when it happened. I, I believe that Neptune was the first planet to be theorized to oh, exist yeah. before officially being discovered. Right. You know, there was, uh, you know, math that was done to indicate there should be another planet beyond Uranus. And then astronomers from all over the world tried to validate or verify that. And, and then uh, Laverre, I guess, uh, if I'm saying that right, would, was he the discoverer or did he do the... Yeah, it's, it's the, like, the yeah, math, I think he's yeah. the one that kind of, in the end, has received the credit. Um, right, right. Leverrier. Yeah. And so that's kind of interesting because there's also some theories out there that there's a planet nine that exists even beyond Neptune. And is that, you know, the Kuiper belt? Is that, you know, did it, was it a planet that never really formed there? There's all sorts of interesting speculation about that too. Yeah. That's from a, a few years ago now, I think. And they, they declare that they had uh, sort of mathematically discovered this planet based on, you know, all these other uh, tidal interactions and gravitational forces um, yet it's never been observed, right? It's that same kind of, it's that same kind of situation, you know, it's, it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg. Like you're, what, what are you observing? Well, they're observing that there's something out there that's causing these things, um, these gravitational perturbations, yet nobody has sort of quote unquote, like visually seen it or photographed it or, or whatever. But that's just one other, other sort of a piece of evidence towards uh, declaring something uh, in existence, I suppose, because you could, in essence, find something that that looks like a planet, but then maybe it's it's hollow. It doesn't really have much, um, you know. Gravitation could be a giant comet or something that's just going to sort of melt away really quick. I mean, you know, there could be a lot of caveats, but they're saying that this this is not those type of things. So I like it. It's sort of philosophical in a way. Like when when does it come into existence? Just when it's uh, theoretically proven or when it's uh, visually observed uh, one way or another. So I kind of like that aspect of it. It's pretty neat. So what do you think, Shane? Yeah. Uh, you know, I just like to look at what I can see. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll let, I'll let the astronomers figure out planet nine. Seeing is believing. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to add on our tour of the planets, the eight planets of our solar system? No, that's it. Uh, I'm looking forward to observing a number of them over the coming months. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for everybody for listening.